Welcome again to the Good Trash Genre Cast, where we gather around a table and we discuss the films that will never come up in a film studies course. This week's film is no exception. It is all about um, what what one does after flatulence. We're looking at the film Stand By Me. And we will continue to look about at films about flatulence throughout the next couple of weeks as we do our marathon, uh, Fart By Me. No, it's we're going to do a coming-of-age marathon. We're going to cover a couple of different decades. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we're starting as far back as we wanted to. Uh, with uh, this film about the late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. And so, a uh, good time will be had by all seeing the adaptation of the Stephen King novella, The Body, brought to the big screen by Rob Reiner. And uh, good times will be had by all. Now, let's go ahead and identify these voices that might be speaking to your brains right now. So you just know who is um, controlling your thoughts. To my left, who are you, sir? My name is Dalton Stewart. And what was I supposed to think of everything? I brought the comb. <laughs> he did bring the comb. He did bring He wants the... to look good if we get on TV. I always, always bring the comb. Because, yes, Arthur, I want to look good if we're on TV. I'm trying to take care of us. It's got to be prepared. Yeah. Oh, I'm always prepared. That's a good point. Who are you, sir? I am Arthur Gordon. And the women's auxiliary barfed all over the benevolent order of antelopes. Yes, they did. And my name is Dustin Zells, and the only word I have to say is Barfarama, which is an <laughs> excellent line of text. Uh, so we were both in the same moment there. Uh, in the film, Stand By Me. Now, in case you're tuning into the Good Trash Genrecast for the very first time, this is how we need to warn you about spoilers. This is not a review show, guys. No, no. This is an analysis show. I would make the argument that any good review is just a piece of analysis. I would say so as well, but some good reviews will avoid spoiler issues. We, however, do not. But we do give you the briefest of reprieves from said spoilerage. And so what we shall do is uh, do a synopsis from The Voice of the Cinema. Mr. Arthur Gordon will deliver that to us. Then we'll go to give some fairly quick thumbs up. forget how to talk there for a second. Thumbs down reviews. I do this from time to time. We haven't done this in like three weeks, so it's, it's been, a little yeah. rusty. Yeah, you, you have had no lapse in content, listener. But we, we did take a break uh, from each other, and uh, we decided that we're going to keep giving this marriage a shot. And yeah. I, <laughs> I, I, I am the worst for it. I haven't seen any of these guys in ten years, and I know I'll miss him for the rest of my life. When the night Okay, we're gone. Um, anyway. Uh, come. Uh, uh, yeah, I've lost in my entire uh, So what we're going to do. Synopses. Yep, there you go. Arthur's going to do the thing. We're going to do a thumbs up, thumbs down review, which spoiler will remain free. spoiler free. Exactly. Then we're going to play a little game. Uh, no spoilers this week. Uh, sometimes those, that gameplay does involve some mild spoilers of this film and films in its orbit. Probably not this week. Uh, and then we will move into analysis, the cornerstone of this program in which all spoiler bets are off. It's going to be fast and furious. You can tell by all the spoilers. There you go. You have now been warned. See, I can do it when you're Dalton, here. Dalton took my job. Well, you forgot how to talk, and then Arthur flustered you. I, You've got to stay on it for these interruptions. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. So, without any further ado, Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, let's hear that synopsis, please. After the death of a friend, a writer recounts a boyhood journey to find the body 
of a missing boy. Spoiler alert! IMDb synopsis: Jesus. Not really. I mean, it's in the, the first, first minute. minute. Oh, yeah. did they mention that he's already? That's what yeah. Richard Dreyfus is all doing. He's looking at the paper. He reads it in the newspaper oh, in his car at the beginning. That's right. I'd forgotten about that by the end of the movie. How, how, how about Richard Dreyfus <laughs> for five minutes? Oh, can we? Just, I mean, <laughs> face acting. I mean, does he? He has like two lines. Yeah. And, 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 VO. and a little bit of voiceover, yeah. And he is awesome. He's great. He's fantastic. I love Richard Dreyfus. So, um, anyway, uh, so I guess we've already uh, begun to tip our hands regarding um, our thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, but we're going to get into them proper now. Mr. Arthur Gordon, tell me, do you like Stand By Me? If so, why? If not, leave. Oh, wow. That's, uh, that's an ultimatum. Very aggressive. It's a, yeah, I'm, geez, buddy, it's only been three weeks. I still love you. Um, I, I love Stand By Me. I mean, this this is... I was confident I could make that um, ultimatum knowing that I would not have to um, yeah. make good on him. What am I, a fool? <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Took. I, uh, I, yeah, it's, it's a, ma- I mean, I don't know if it's a masterpiece, but it's great. I mean, I think it's the pinnacle of the coming, I mean, when people think of coming of age movies, I think Stand By Me is the one that comes to mind. It has influenced and inspired so many films to follow. Uh, and even TV, you know, the Stranger Things is based on a similar, you know, idea. That idea of these kids just riding around and running around getting into trouble. I mean, it, it, it has... Uh, kind of sent shockwaves, I think, throughout a, a genre of film. And, um, I, I, you know, it's not the starting point for the genre, but I, I definitely think it's the the point that most people go back to. And it's great. I mean, you've got a great cast of kids with great chemistry, Jerry O'Connell, Corey Feldman, uh, Will Wheaton, uh, River Phoenix, and, and they're great together. They're so natural and earnest. They're perfect together. Yeah. Uh, the, the chemistry between those four boys is just it's tangible. I mean, they they work so well together. You believe everything that they do, everything that they say, uh, their interactions, and they all bring a level, of, I think, of empathy and pathos to their characters. Especially uh, Corey Feldman, who's uh, is a great turn. I mean, his his character's you know half tragic and half comic relief, and, and it's a reading between the lines of that kind of tragedy of of him kind of living in the shadow and he doesn't want to, you know, he's trying to remember his father as the war vet and he's, you know, we're led to believe his, his father's much different than that. And, and he's the way he plays that is, is pic, uh, picture perfect. I think how much is his character trash mouth from it? And I have another question. Would those kids have been within, you know, uh, as far as age groups go, would they have known each other in the sort of fictional world of castle rock? I don't, I mean this, I mean, in in this universe, I don't think so. I mean, it's this 50, is a Castle Rock of Oregon, right? Yeah, well, it's in the movie, it's Oregon, but yeah. it's Castle Rock, yeah, you know, in so, the in the book. But it's fifty eight in the in the original. Yeah, I, I mean, conceivably, yeah, sure. But I mean, a uh, hundred miles, one hundred fifty miles was a much further distance in the sixties than it is now. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, it's Derry, not Castle Rock. Yeah, that's right. It's, yeah, it's yeah. Derry and uh, it. But that's yeah, I right. mean they're both in Maine, so yeah. conceivably. I mean, especially if you're looking at the books, and I'm sure I'm some, there's some connections, you know. But I mean, it definitely, it the film it uh, ties I think most closely to Stand by Me, and it feels like a more fleshed out version of Stand by Me, and and, and the the book itself and the movies. Um, but yeah, I, I think Ryan's direction is solid. He's he, he, it never feels super schmaltzy. And it could really be dangerous playing that game in this one, especially with the nostalgia uh, value. But I think he plays it well. And, and there's this earnestness between these characters. You know, there's this uh, uh, just emotion. You know, this these are these are boys growing up in a world of toxic masculinity, and they're they're just trying to get in touch with their emotional core. And, and 
that's just a be- very beautiful thing about this film. Um, and it's very honest about just boys being boys. I mean, the, the kind of banter they have, and this is something that came up in the next picture show, but you know, those conversations like can super, uh, Superman beat Mickey mouse, like that kind of stuff. It just feels yeah. so, so honest and so real. Um, so yeah, I, I like it a lot. I think it runs smooth. I think it moves pretty, pretty well. Um, I, I, you know, there's some, probably some negatives, but I don't really have anything negative to say about it. I, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. All right, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Now, Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you like Stand By Me or are you wrong? I am correct. This movie is quite delightful. I'm the only person uh, in this room that had never First seen time. Stand By Me before. Yeah, yeah it's uh, it, it's been a long time coming. Uh, th- this is a film my, uh, my adopted father. Uh, this is a film that's really important to him. Uh, throughout my entire life, this is a movie he's talked about because, you know, this is he's the same age as the characters in this film, not as... Uh, you know, Will Wheaton and Phoenix, you know, he's a generation older than the actors playing these kids. He was yeah. 12 years old in 1960. I mean, yeah. this is a film about what it was like to be a kid in a, a smallish town. Yeah. And it really always spoke to him. And he's always spoken very highly of it. And I just never got around to it. And I'm so, so excited to, to finally catch up with it. And, uh, yeah, I, I can see why it hit uh, the boomer so hard when it came yeah. out. Because this film was quite lauded from the get-go. I mean, this is a film that while not something you would talk about in a film studies course, does have a lot of cultural cachet, I think. Um, and, and it's so interesting to me uh, that, Arthur, as you were talking about, you know, connections to uh, Stephen King's other work like It, it's really interesting that the the two, you know, men who have uh, most influenced uh, a boy's tale, as it were, throughout pop culture over the last 40-some-odd years are Stephen King uh, and Steven Spielberg. Uh, it is really interesting that these these two guys have really kind of shaped how we talk about childhood in such fundamental ways. Uh, and even, you know, when, you know, uh, we finally do later on in the, the 80s and 90s and in international cinema, we get other voices about coming of age, you know, from minority filmmakers, from female filmmakers, uh, from international filmmakers. A lot of those coming of age stories do still kind of pay homage to these stories and it it is very interesting to me and again it's usually by design usually they are intentionally riffing on these these stories about white male masculinity and are riffing on them by design but at the same time they they still kind of tip their hat to to these stories by Stephen King and by Steven Spielberg Uh, and it is interesting to me the ways in which Spielberg um, you know has kind of become famous for this kind of uh, misty-eyed look at childhood whereas King has a much more frightened and i would argue realistic uh view of childhood um and i think that's what's so beautiful about this film is it does capture the beauty and the charm and 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 the joy but it captures the the terror the absolute unmitigated fear of being 12 years old and having no control over your life um and and i think that's that's something that you know king excels at in this story and excels at it and again obviously i'm just talking about the the, uh, screen adaptations having not read the body or it um, but being fundamentally aware of these stories' impact on the stories we tell about young male uh, coming of age. Uh, but yeah, I, I think Arthur's absolutely right. This is kind of the pinnacle of what we talk about when we talk about American uh, boy coming of age films. Uh, and even when we do talk about female coming of age films um, or a- about uh, coming of age uh, in communities of color, I, I think those films do pay some respect to this film in interesting ways. And we'll talk about that more as we go throughout this marathon, as we get later on. We're going to, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about Boys in the Hood. Uh, And I think uh, that film, 
does a really interesting job of kind of juxtaposing what you know American cinema has talked about when it talks about male coming of age, when it explores coming of age in uh, South Central Los Angeles. Um, but again, I, I, I really do. I see the love that uh, Stand by Me has has received throughout the years, and I got to say, uh, believe the hype. It's very, very good. And uh, as Arthur mentioned, these these performances are so nuanced. Um, it, it makes your heart break for, you know, Hollywood can eat a metric ton of my farts for what it did to Corey, uh, both of them, uh, but specifically Corey Feldman. Uh, and it can eat a metric ton of my farts for what happened to River Phoenix because uh, I, I hold Hollywood responsible for giving that troubled young man access to heroin. I'm sorry. Uh, yes, uh, at a certain point, um, addicts become responsible for their own behavior, but... Uh, you know, Hollywood, you have a responsibility to your child actors to uh, keep them safe. And the fact that that does not happen, and in fact, the exact opposite happens, most of the time they get exploited and abused. It's fucked up, man. Yeah. Uh, and it's really sad to see... I mean, River... Fe- it is absurd that somebody is that good of an actor at 15. Yeah. Yeah, River is just head and shoulders above everybody. And, yeah, and everybody's good. Yeah, but, but he's... River's next level. Yeah. Yeah. He's better than Richard Dreyfus. And again, Richard Dreyfus has less to do in this film for sure, but he is the best actor in this film. This is a film that features John Cusack for a scene. River Phoenix is better than I, I like John Cusack. I'll go to bat for Cusack. Rivers, he's he's incomparable. I mean, it, it really is an amazing performance, and he, they're the first film that I have ever seen of River Phoenix, um, and it immediately made me want to try to uh, tra- track down the rest of his oeuvre. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up because I could keep talking about this for a while. Uh, I, I liked it a lot, guys, and I'm very glad we decided to talk about this film. Yes, indeed. Thank you for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. I also liked Stand By Me quite a lot. I watched it when I was 12, and it has been one of those formative films. And uh, it, it you know, it creates an appreciation of friendship, I think. I, there's, there's a certain way in which this is a film that belongs on, and I haven't looked for a minute at the BFI Top 50 Movies to Watch Before You're 14, but if it's not on there, it's a crime. Um, I will say that much because it's, it's super good. And it is one of those films that helps you negotiate some of those things. The performances are great. You mentioned John Cusack. Uh, there are a, a handful of little secondary small parts, John Cusack, Keeper Sutherland, and others. And even these little bits of secondary cast work uh, that are uh, Marshall, what was his uh, dad, Papa Papa Gordon. Yeah, I can't think of the uh, actor's name either, unfortunately. But I mean, he's, he's so good. Um, Marshall something. Is his, Marshall's yeah. his first name. Um, but... All of these actors and uh, all of these um, bits of casting are just done spot on. Uh, the way in which the musical cues are used from the radio from the 1950s into the 60s mm-hmm. is just fantastic. Uh, there's a, a segment. an intentional evocation of a nostalgia for its target audience at the time, sure. Yeah. Marshall Bell, by the way, uh, plays uh, Gordy's dad. And he's great. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's, and he's just perfectly cast and just super good. But yeah, the, the needle drops. Yeah. The they're needle, fantastic. They're, 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 it, it, everything is so good. The, uh, the way in which uh, the sets um, are, are dressed, is particularly that little 50s grocery store, is just perfect. Uh, costuming is spot on. Yeah. I mean, it's, it does everything right without being real flashy. It's not like it's screaming at you at the 50s. But you've got those classical cars, but you've got those classic cars in the states of disrepair that they would find themselves in. So we're looking at these late 40s or early 50s cars that have survived into 1960, and they look like they've been around that long. 
and uh, that that sort of disuse uh, in in that set design is just kind of it's really brilliant. And uh, so there, there's nothing I can say uh, bad about the movie. I really I don't think I can say anything bad about it at all. It is just a lot of fun. I mean, it does in some ways represent some toxic masculinity in places where it doesn't interrogate it as well as maybe it should, but. Uh-huh. It presents it, and it, I, I honestly think that's enough. I, I agree that you're right, Dustin. Maybe it could interrogate it a little bit more, but I think the fact that it presents it unflinchingly is, you know, the film at least does its job in that respect. Yeah, and considering 1986 and that we're not having conversations about toxic masculinity in 1986, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, you know, quite absolutely. Frankly. So um, I think it's able to get beyond that, and that the beautiful, beautiful scene where um, uh, Will Wheaton is just crying in the arms of, of uh, River Phoenix <sighs> is, is, is so well acted, and it is so well connected uh, to, and I won't talk about the exact sort of uh, turn there to avoid spoilers. Yeah, but, we'll get there. But that, that moment is brilliantly acted, and it does, in a way, interrogate without interrogation, if that makes sense. It, it yeah. simply shows an alternative uh, sort of way of viewing and handling uh, the the feels uh, when one is trying to figure out how to grow up and become a man. So anyway, it's a great movie. It, it's been formative on my life, and uh, I think there's going to be some cool analysis happening later. And so uh, we'll have a good conversation, I'm sure, in the future about that, the very near future that's coming to us right now. But before we get there, we got to talk about social media. Um, Dalton, I'm going to let you do it, even though you did my job. You can still do this because I'm generous. Well, and also you don't want this job. This no. job's boring. You guys always check your phones during this part. Yeah. Hi, welcome to the part of the show where Dustin and Arthur check their phones and make sure they have their notes ready for the next segment. That is, in fact, what I'm doing right now. I know. I know. I, I'm, I'm aware. fantasy baseball. Well, guys, shut up so I can do my job. <laughs> Hi, welcome to the social media corner. It's me, Dalton, here to tell you how you can connect with us uh, via, via the interwebs. Um, obviously, you're putting a podcast in your ears, so I assume you have some familiarity with the internet and probably podcasts. Um, I'm just going to start in reverse order this time, and we're going to work of most important to least important. Uh, if you want to connect with the show, probably the easiest way you can do that is just to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, however you put it in your ears. Um, it means a lot to us. It helps us with our visibility, obviously. Um, but, uh, you know, it's just nice to know that people are out there. And uh, it helps us out, again, in terms of visibility, and it's a very low-stress, low-stakes way for you to uh, make your voice heard. Uh, you can also email us if you have long-form feedback. You know, we, we check the reviews every once in a while. We don't that often, though. So if you've got something you really want to say, uh, that's going to be goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. Uh, if you've got something uh, about the show that you uh, are dying to get off your chest, hit us up there. Um, yeah, we're on social media. Uh, who cares? Uh, we're on Facebook. You don't need to be there. Uh, spend as little time there as you possibly can. We're on Twitter. Probably also spend as much... To let <clears throat> I said as much earlier. Spend as little time as you possibly can on Facebook, and spend as little time as you can on Twitter. Uh, the internet is hijacking our brains, and not always in good ways, sometimes in good ways. Uh, and if you feel moved to spread joy and empathy in the world, yeah, get on Twitter. We're at good underscore trash. Uh, that's going to be the place where you can track everything going on with uh, not just the Good Trash Genre cast, our flagship show, but also all of Good Trash Media, uh, whether it's this show or the Praise Down or other stuff we're working on. Arthur and I uh, try to do our best to keep the Twitter over there fun and light, uh, also presenting you with the news of the day in the film world, what you need to know if you're going to be loving film, um, all kinds of fun stuff over there, fun questions, fun polls, uh, goofs and spoofs uh, are had plenty. Uh, but, you know, if you're going to get on the Internet for so long reading sad news that it uh, makes you question your life choices, 
you know, maybe take a break from the internet for a little bit. Uh, maybe go talk to a friend. That's a better way to engage with the show. Go tell your friends about it. Tell the people in your life that like film, that like podcasts about the show, because uh, that is the best way to help this thing grow is to spread the word to the people in your life. Uh, last but certainly not least, if you feel compelled to make a monetary donation to us, you do not have to, but if you're interested in doing that, that's going to be patreon.com forward slash GTM. Uh, and that is also where all of our, our super fancy bonus content lives, where you can check out Good Trash Nights, as I've insisted on calling it. Uh, we do all kinds of stuff. Uh, mostly we talk about what's got us fired up in pop culture. Uh, we do the occasional special movie drop where we'll uh, watch a movie together, the three of us, and then immediately start recording something about it. Um, a little taste of that in your main feed. Uh, we went and saw Hereditary recently with yeah. our very own Frightful Femme, Kirsten Thurkelson. Um, we had a great time and we talked about it. We dropped that in the main feed because Hereditary was awesome and we wanted to share it with the world. But th- that kind of stuff will generally live on the Patreon and if you want access to that, it's like $3 a month. We'll get you access to all of our bonus audio. Um, but you don't even have to give us that much. If you don't want the bonus audio, you just want to, you know, help keep the lights on, throw us a buck. Uh, if you're, you know, feeling real money bags and want to make sure we can keep the lights on forever, you know, give us $1,000 a month if you got that kind of money lying around. I don't care. Whatever, whatever the spirit moves you to do. Uh, that's it. We're done with Social Media Corner. Stay off Facebook. Uh, spend as little time on Twitter as humanly possible because apparently Jack doesn't give a shit about white supremacists on his, his uh, website, and that's a real bummer. Uh, we're on Instagram, too, now, I guess. Right, Arthur? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we are on Instagram. Hey, I'm not, trash re- media. Uh, I'm okay. not responsible for that one. So. I haven't had time to post in a while, so. Okay. So maybe... Uh, you, can, you can still follow us there, but you might not get a lot of content. Yeah, but, you know, you probably won't be mad at all. Yeah. Yeah, so you prob- you're probably safe on Instagram. I'm not ever on there. Is it Instagram safe still? I think so. I think so, yeah. It's mainly selfies and uh, food pics. Okay, so Instagram's still safe. I like faces and food, so. Yeah, faces and books. Together? No good. I like faces <laughs> for food, yeah. Ooh. Hey, for more uh, cannibal content, check us uh, talking about Hannibal on our most recent uh, Patreon bonus content. Uh, Hannibal the Cannibal Trademark, Frederick Childen. <laughs> Yowzers. Dustin, Art. it's your turn to uh, take the reins of the show. Yeah. Uh, it's time to play the game. Wait. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but damn the game, if it don't mean nothing, what is game? Who got game? Where's the game in life? Behind the game, behind the game. I got game, she got game, we got game, they got game, he got game. It might feel good, it might sound a little something, but fuck the game if it ain't saying nothing. And we are back. I did not like how abrupt that transition was. It was very jarring. I am um, the king of segues, let me tell you. Um, uh, we're back with our game. Our game is Favorite Stephen King Adaptations. That's right. Our favorite Stephen King Adaptations brought to you by Stand By Me. Stand By Me. Clearly everyone's favorite Stephen King adaptation, but we will not be putting that on our lists. It's a really good one. It uh, is. There, there, are, there are many good ones, though. There are, there there are, are a lot of good ones, actually. There are some stinkers, and then there are some others. Uh, there's a whole conversation about faithful versus unfaithful adaptations, but we're just going to say whether we like the movie or not. That is yeah. all the, the only thing that's going to be part of this you conversation. You guys know how little I read, so obviously I have no opinion on the faithfulness of the adaptation. Like the Shining is like the sort of, you know, ur text the, for yeah. that. Yeah, the Shining is the uh, the antithesis, and uh, Stand by Me is the thesis of uh, the. I think that's probably fair. No. Aside from the shift in order, at least from King's point of view. 
you. Yeah, yeah, I would, I would agree with that. So uh, here we go. Um, we're going to go right through. Uh, I guess we have three apiece. Arthur, you're going first. What is your number first pick for favorite Stephen King adaptations? Are we round robbing this? Yeah. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, my first pick is actually a, a little horror film from the, the later aughts, uh, maybe early. 20, I think it's late aughts. Uh, it's uh, 1408 uh, with John really? Cusack and uh, Sam Jackson. Uh, I, I like it quite a bit. I've seen it a handful of times, and I, I, I think it's a solid little spooky thriller. I, I, I enjoy it quite a bit. I think Cusack, I, I, I'm like you, I'm a defender of Cusack. I think he's uh, a lot of fun. Um, he's kind of in that Nick Cage point in his career where he just kind of does whatever, uh, but when he's on, he's on. Um, but yeah, that's a, a movie I, I enjoy quite a bit. I, I I like it. I, I like the kind of spoopiness of it, and the uh, just the idea of a haunted hotel is fun to me. Um, Sam Jackson's a blast in there as well, and it, it goes some interesting places, I think, with the narrative and the spookiness of it. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I think it works quite a bit, so uh, I'm going to go with 1408. Nice. I like that selection. Uh, Dalton Stewart, what is your number first pick? Uh, my number first pick is uh, from about that same time period, and uh, it's one of the first Stephen King adaptations I really remember having a really strong opinion about, and it is The Mist. Uh, starring Thomas Jane, not the TV show that is out now. I don't have any opinions about that. I don't even know if people like it or not. Uh, I think it's got two seasons. I don't. Is it on Paramount? It was on Spike. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know. N- no one knows. People are barely aware that The Mist has a TV show. The film is great. I like it a lot. I like how bleak it is. I know that uh, the ending, without spoiling it, is uh, quite controversial. Um, yeah. Bleak. Bleak, yeah, very bleak. Uh, some, I believe, our Kirsten Thurk is on our own frightful film. I'm pretty sure she hates the ending of that movie. Actually, um, we've had conversations about it. I feel like that's her opinion, and I know a lot of people who feel that way. That the ending of that film just absolutely ruins it for them. I like it. I, I like the real uh, got you outer limits, Twilight Zone, uh, horror, Black Mirror, and just absolute hellscape that is the ending of that movie i think it works really well because i think it is a film about human depravity uh it is a film that happens to feature monsters it it does what the best monster movies do it uses the monsters to highlight our own uh, insecurities and our own uh evils as, as people um look it's it's stephen king's take on dawn of the dead for all intents and purposes but i i just really love every performance in that movie uh, from top to bottom, uh, uh, Marisha Gay Harding is obviously fantastic as the human antagonist. Uh, Andre Brower is very good in it as well. I mean, it, it's, it is Andre Brower, right? Okay, thank you. Uh, it's been a while since I've seen the film, uh, but I just, I, I've seen it two or three times since it, it was initially released. Didn't see it in theaters, but I've seen it on DVD and television a handful of times. And every time I stumble across that movie, I will end up watching the whole thing because I just, I think it's great. I, I think it's got a really spoopy atmosphere that really works. I think Thomas Jane's performance is, is fantastic. I think the creature design is absolutely astonishing, and they do a really good job of hiding their effects budget by using the mist to obscure the monsters in ways that are really inventive and yet not so inventive. I mean, they really are just doing techniques we've been doing for you know as long as there have been monster movies, honestly. But they, they do so in a way that feels modern. Um, and just really great. And I think it's a film that speaks to, um, it is a great benchmark of post 9-11 filmmaking is what I will say about that. So Frank Darabont's The Mist. Excellent. I like that pick very much. Thank you, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, my first selection is The Green Mile. I like that movie a lot. Uh, another Frank Darabont. Another Frank Darabont, uh, joint. And, uh, I mean, it's just... It is so smart, and I, I really enjoy the Stephen King 
uh, universe in which the supernatural is not in the forefront. Yeah. I, I really just kind of love those kinds of stories where the supernatural is definitely there and definitely a huge part of it, but it's mostly about the conditions of human beings, you know, sort of in their moment. I mean, there's a little bit of that in Stand By Me when they have the sort of, uh, uh, what is that? What is what is his term there for the something tet? It's uh, from the Dark Tower. I know what you're talking yeah, about. It's not like, important. It's, it's a group thing that happens when, it, you know, you're sort of magically aligned and they all flip tails or whatever, right? I, I love that there's a little bit of that stuff leaking in always, but not necessarily the condition. And the Green Miles that it's it's about Angola. It's about Louisiana. It's about race relations. It's about the prison system and the dehumanization of others. It's about the death penalty. And also, there is something very supernatural going on as well, but that's really not the main thing. Yeah, because it's about prison yeah. and grace and mercy. And Michael Clark Duncan's best performance, R.I.P. Oh, my goodness. He's just amazing. Uh, and one of Sam Rockwell's best performances. Sam Rockwell is so solid as Billy the Kid. He is super good. And, uh, you know, and then Tom Hanks kills it as well. So, I mean, you, you, you just can't lose. That, that film is stacked top to bottom with character yeah. actors. And it really is. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and so... Um, anyway, it's, it's a movie that I've, I, I've just, it doesn't really get a lot because it is a little schmaltzy. I think it feels, it's uh, also just, over three hours long. It is quite long, yeah, it is. but man, it is, it is super good. And it is part of my just general argument about Stephen King. Uh, he, he produced the novels for this, uh, serially and, uh, in the style of Charles Dickens, because Stephen King is the Charles Dickens of 20th century, 21st century America. I'm saying it. Write the book. It's, it, that's, that's who he is. So anyway, there you go. Number first, let's go number next. What do you say, Arthur Gordon? I, I might as well just go ahead and close this circle, and I'll say the Shawshank Redemption. You were just going to get all the Darren Bonds yeah, out of the way. Yeah, I think we might as well, because uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a run right there. Yeah, it's uh, insane. Darren Bonds, uh, a, a solid director. I'm kind of ashamed we haven't got to him. Much, but. much like, well, apparently he's kind of a, a, a jerk mm. uh, to work with sometimes. That's uh, fair. Apparently things uh, on The Walking Dead when he oh, was in charge yeah. Yeah, just yeah, yeah. really did not go well, and he was yeah. kind of a, a turd about it, and I yeah. think that's probably hurt his career. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, what a great run. Yeah. And uh, much like uh, Rob Reiner, really like Stephen King. Yeah. But Shawshank, I think, is just it's a blast. I mean, I, I, I like that kind of long approach to the story, you know, over the years kind of thing that they go. But, uh, you know, Tim Robbins and uh, Morgan Freeman, they're just a great pair. And that kind of opening moment when I saw Andy Dufresne, you know. Yeah. Uh, that kind of introduction there is just, I think, iconic. Uh, and it's really seeped into pop culture. And, and that whole movie, I think, has seeped into pop culture. Everything riffs it. Oh, you're absolutely right. Uh, Family Guy riffs it. The Simpsons riffs it. You know, uh, it, Last Man on Earth. It's a running joke throughout that entire series. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so it has definitely made its mark. Uh, and it's just, it's good. It does some of this. It's really similar, I think, to Stand By Me in the way it carries its tone and some nostalgia and the way it kind of flirts with those things and, and the themes and because um, it could be much like Green Mile, it could become super schmaltzy, or it could you know fall into this trap or that trap. But I think it it, it uh, threads that needle very well, um, and it's it's memorable. And and I think it it stands out for a lot of people as probably one of King's stronger adaptations. Absolutely, absolutely. What is your number next pick, Mr. Dalton Stewart? I just want to say uh, that I'm really proud of Arthur for going to bat for that movie because I think it's become very in vogue to be mean to the Shawshank Redemption. I like the Shawshank It's good. What's well, that thing? You know, it gets popular and then we've got to... It wasn't popular when it came out and it kind of became this like pseudo-intellectual like guy movie. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it's it's your stepbrother and your dad's favorite movie, right? Yeah. You know, that's, yep. that's the... Uh, 
the the joke. And honestly, yes, that is accurate. But sometimes, well, I am somebody's stepbrother yeah. and their dad. Yeah, not so, the same person. <laughs> thank God. Uh, look, sometimes uh, culture at large gets it right. Sometimes they like a middle brow movie that is actually pretty damn good. And this is one of those. And yeah. way to go to bat for it, Arthur. Well, my second pick was actually going to be the Green Mile. Um, so I'm going to call an audible, and I'm going to pick the Hulu series 112263. Nice. nice. As we've been going down this list, it is remarkable how many uh, actors who we have decided uh, need to be canceled uh, <laughs> are in these Stephen King adaptations, whether it's Morgan Freeman or uh, James Franco. Or Frank Darabont. Frank Darabont. Look, sometimes people need to be canceled, but they were in things that were good. And I think 112263 is really great. Um, Allison Shoemaker, who uh, I got to talk to on the People's History Film back when we were doing that, wrote an amazing series of reviews over that show for AV Club. And it was reading those that actually really like helped me appreciate it as much as I do. And I think, uh, as Dustin mentioned with The Green Mile, I think what that film does, it's obviously much more in line with the, uh, the I guess I would say science fictional over magical, but it is more in line with the fantastical elements of Stephen King's work. Like That stuff is a much bigger part of it than it is in The Green Mile. But as with the Green Mile, what makes that work is the way it highlights people in a place and a time. And, yeah, it's about the 60s, uh, and it's about racism and toxic masculinity, and it's about what happens if a modern person gets dropped into the 60s more than it is anything else. Yeah, it's about trying to prevent the JFK assassination and the the unknowability of what-ifs. Sure, it's all about that kind of stuff, too. But really, at the end of the day, it's about people in a time and a place and highlighting that people don't change. I think it's mostly a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Really. I mean, yeah, that's you know, that's it's the same story we've told several times, yeah. and I think that uh, those parallels by King are probably intentional for sure, because that's what the story ends up becoming for most of its runtime is just about uh, the Franco character living in the '60s and how kind of uh, how huge of a culture shock that is, uh, despite uh, it being a time and a place that we still remember pretty well. Like, it's not like it's lost to history. We remember what the 1960s were like. People are still alive who were alive in the 1960s. But it, it does a really good job of highlighting that uh, history changes, sure. Our interpretations of history change. Um, power changes. But the way people behave in a time and a place, the way people behave when they are allowed to act uh, without um, limits to their power, that shit doesn't change. Uh, and I, I think that's what's really, really cool about eleven twenty two sixty three awesome. on Hulu, Hulu, Hulu. Give us your money before I give my number next pick. Have either of you gotten a chance to watch the Castle Rock series that just dropped on Hulu? Wait, did it drop already? Did it come out? I think it dropped yesterday. Did it? Wait, I what? I didn't realize it was already out. No, I, I, I knew I, it was coming. I didn't know yeah. it was out. I think it just did. Holy shit! I will be watching that. Yeah, I know what I'm doing later. Yeah, right. <laughs> Happy Fourth of July. Yeah, <laughs> I was watching Glow season two, but. I might have to take a pause for the cause. There you go. Um, so my number next pick is going to be Needful Things. Uh, 90s film, uh, Ed Harris is a town sheriff, and Max von Sydow is the devil. And he comes to... Yes, please. Yeah, yes. Um, Jesus is playing the devil. This is a thing that happens a lot in cinema. And uh, when those turns happen, um, they are almost always pretty awesome. And so Max von Sydow does some good work uh, giving people exactly what they think they want. And it 
brings about a heavy price. And uh, it's interesting. It's, just, it's, it's a very interesting meditation on just what it means to be a person. Kind of a forgotten adaptation, too. Yeah, and it's a pretty good book to start with. And so, um, yeah, it, 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 I mean, it's, it's one of the, I mean, there's so many movies. There's so many books. There's so much uh, media related to Stephen King. This is one of those lost-in-the-shuffle gems. And so if you really are trying to dig deep into the Stephen King, yes, indeed, I'm certain that I could rank several films as actually better than Needful Things. But Needful Things is just it, – it's so solid and forgotten that I wanted to make sure I gave it my number next selection uh, so that people would consider it. Good news, ladies and gentlemen. You have time to finish Glow Season 2. Uh, Castle Rock does not drop until July 25th, and oh, it will drop its first two episodes. So we've got two weeks. Yeah. Okay. Two weeks and counting. Yeah, there we go. Uh, awesome times. Uh, so there you go. Uh, moving on to number last. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number last selection for favorite Stephen King adaptations? What? Am I not going to say The Shining? Um, uh, no. I, I, it's to me. I mean, It's, it's a, a horror masterwork. Yeah. It's yeah, fucking it's great. It's so good. And it's the question, you know, of what makes a great adaptation. Is it sticking religiously close to the text or is it just taking those thematic threads and running with that? And I think that's what Kubrick does. I think he takes those fears that are there, those those concerns, those paranoias that I think were eking through in King's writing at that time. You know, it's it's no secret that he had his struggles, he had his demons, and that came out in his writing a lot. And I think uh, Kubrick picked up on that, and, and he ran with it. And it's a tale of nothing is as it seems. We don't, you know, is Jack losing it? Is Jack seeing stuff? Is the supernatural real? Uh, it, it plays with that all so well, and it's gorgeously shot. It's so well-constructed. The set design of the Overlook is just magnificent, um, and yeah, I, I, I think it, it's you know I know you know King still hates it to this day, um, but to me it's it's it is a masterwork like Dalton said, and, and it it does so many things right. Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, I, you know a lot of people dog Shelley Duvall, but I think she's great in that movie. I think she does exactly what she's supposed to do in that role, and I think she plays it well, and it's very effective. And Danny is, is good. Um, every, everybody's, you know, it's a small cast, but it works. Uh, and, and yeah, and Jack is just Jack for days. And, uh, I, I love the shining. I, I think it's just a fantastic masterpiece. I totally agree. I, I think that's a, a, a totally appropriate selection. So thank you for that. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what is your number last pick? Mr. Dalton Stewart. I, I just got to say, it's a great pick and I'm picking something else just so we can not keep talking about the shining. Same. Uh, but, uh, I am going to go with last year's It, Chapter 1, as it will be known in retrospect, uh, released just as It. I just really like that movie. I ended up watching uh, the last, like, 30 minutes of it uh, on HBO with my sister the other day. Um, I and didn't even end up watching the whole thing, but I was just kind of, like, listening to her watch it was a hoot. And I, I just like it. It's not even a scary film, let's be honest. Uh, it's as scary as Stranger Things. It's just more violent. Mm-hmm. Uh that's not what's special about it. What's special about uh, 2017's It is what's special about Stand By Me. It's a really great film about childhood friendship um, that just happens to take place in a carnival funhouse. Um, I really like uh, Bill Skarsgård as uh, Pennywise the Clown. I don't find him particularly frightening, let's be honest. Uh, I, I, that film gets me once or twice. Uh, I think the opening of that film is legitimately horrifying. Uh, I think the scene with the painting... Um, is a really great uh, distillation of how you get afraid when you're a kid, because uh, it absolutely happened to me, not with a painting, but uh, 
uh, a book cover in someone's office or uh, several times VHS covers at the movie store. I, I think the things that scare children are very specific, and it's, some, it's stuff like that. That's what scared me as a kid. And while I don't find the film particularly effective as a horror movie, I find it super effective. And again, I'm not going to say it's not a horror movie. It definitely is, and I know it scares a lot of people. Uh, I watch a lot of horror movies, though, and, you know, uh, I'm immune to certain tricks at this point in my movie-watching career. But I find the, the movie just a, a freaking blast. It's just so much fun, uh, as fun as a movie about, you know, a demon that murders children can be. Uh, but, it, you know, it's a... It's a <laughs> What's not fun about that? <laughs> it is a great film about being a kid. And I, I think the the psychological uh, moments of horror are much more effective. The visceral horror, not so much. But, the, you know, the, the, the famous scene with Beverly in the sink obviously works super well in that adaptation. Um, again, other things don't work well. I think um, making the racism of Deary subtext is a bad choice. I think making uh, the hate crimes of Deary part of the text is super important to what that story is about. Um, again, having never read the novel, just kind of being aware of what is in the novel, that seems like it makes Pennywise much more frightening. Ooh, that's a word that pops on the mic really hard, isn't it? Um, so, I, yeah, there, there are choices in that film that I don't think are super effective, but I, I think it does a really good job of making you feel like you're part of that group and reminding you of what it's like to, to be a kid. And I, I think it pairs really nicely with Stand By Me because it reminds you of the bound families that you form around yourself as a child to keep the monsters of the world at bay. Very good, very good. I like that selection very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, my number last pick is Misery. Uh, love that movie. Um, just uh, Kathy Bates. Yeah. Kathy Bates. Great performance. You know, James Conn's great too, but I mean, Kathy just kills it. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah, I, I do uh, love that movie. I think it's a great little suspense thriller and more Rob Reiner. Yeah. And uh, so there's uh, good stuff going on there in, with, in terms of our conversation uh, about Stand By Me. So those are our selections. Uh, there's a lot more, I'm sure, that we could have said. And uh, if we were at a different day, we might have said. The Dark Tower. <laughs> I don't think that would have been one. Maybe on Earth, too. <laughs> I am curious. What about um, stacking up the TV series It against uh, the uh, new? I have not seen. It's uh, been a long the, time. Yeah. I, I've heard, mini series, I should say. I, I've heard it doesn't hold up super well unless you have, like, really strong opinions about it from back in the day. I saw bits and pieces of it as a kid, and there were moments that really freaked me out, but uh, I don't really have an opinion about it. The nostalgia is strong, but I've seen it not too terribly um, unrecently, and it's, yeah, the, the special effects aren't awesome, but Tim Curry still yeah, is pretty, Tim Curry is. He, he's got a menace that is yeah. um, really disturbing. So, but that's all I'd say about that. So, we're going to move right along, and I think we're going to get down to business. And yet again, we are back to bring you that analysis, and we've got lots of good things that we want to say about the movie Stand By Me. We've been having this sort of ongoing interrogation of the idea of the uh, auteur theory in the last handful of episodes. I mean, not every episode consecutively, but it's been it's been a regular bit of the conversation lately. It's weird how the film world's uh, hive mind works, because uh, I was listening to the final episode of Film Spotting SVU on my way here, all right. You will be remembered fondly. 
Um, if you have not checked that show out, there's a great backlog. And if you don't feel like doing that, uh, Matt Singer and Allison Wilmore, two of my favorite film critics. But I, I bring it up to mention they, they did talk a little bit about auteur theory on that last episode and also did the same thing that we've been doing, which is kind of interrogating it, not only its uh, accuracy, but even its usefulness in talking about film. And uh, it's interesting that the, the conversation on auteur theory does seem to be the, – the worm is turning a little bit in the world of film thought, I think. Yeah. Which is good. Which is good. I mean, I still think it's a handy way to cluster films. I think it's yeah. a handy way to get introduced. Yeah. But um, that being said, there is uh, another um, idea that we want to talk about. Um, that is the mature en scène, right? Which is um, the not not the not the master, not the mise en scène, not the master of the scene, but the guy that's just good at doing the job. He's competent. The journeyman. The yeah. journeyman filmmaker. The, yeah. The, Words out of my mouth, Arthur, absolutely. And I think Mr. Rob Reiner is totally in that category. He is uber-competent. Uber-competent. Yeah. But um, a style is somewhat hard to find, right? So um, go ahead, one of you, just rattle off a couple Rob Reiner titles to give you an idea of, you know, that through line. Oh, that, you good That's not there. Yeah, The Princess Bride. Uh, this is Spinal Tap. Misery that you've already mentioned. Uh, an American President. Yeah, well, I mean, those are, I mean, so they got the sort of LBJ. Hey, I didn't oh, know wow, the LBJ yeah, I movie. forgot about that. The Bucket List. The Bucket List. Well, now we're getting the later career. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, some of the, the most beloved films of the 1980s. Yeah, he, he comes out strong, you know. He, he debuts with This is Spinal Tap, which has become a cult comedy classic, and he's working in that same kind of manner as Christopher Guest doing these mockumentaries mm-hmm. with this... Uh, this traveling band cranking it to 11. It's a film that was so good they made it again and called it Pop Star, Never Stop, Never Stopping. Exactly. Uh, he does The Sure Thing with John Cusack. And he does Stand By Me, The Princess Bride, When Harry Met Sally. Oh, yeah. Misery, shit. A Few Good Men, North. I mean... He, well, I mean, I see how A Few Good Men is just like Misery, just like When Harry Met Sally. Yeah. I mean, they're really the same yeah. movie when you think... I think so. No, they're not. Uh, but, He's he's such a fascinating director, you know. I I, I think he's coming out. And I, I think he comes out around the same time as Zemeckis, right? Zemeckis is, uh, I think most would argue he's a mature en I don't know. I think there's an argument for tourism there, but uh, he, he's hard. another name brought up as yeah. a journeyman filmmaker, though. Um, and they were kind of working the same, coming out of that school of Spielberg out of the '70s and '80s, right? And uh, but yeah, he starts off as this kind of comedy director and. And then just kind of dives into genre and does does a little bit of everything. And and he's got, uh, you know, great skill with the camera. He knows, you know, how to put together a story and and do all of that stuff. But um, I, I don't see a through line. He, I, he's a guy you give a job to, and he'll get the job done and yeah. get it done well. I think the only through line that I, w- I would say that there is, and maybe because uh, you find this with a lot of directors who worked on the other side of the camera, great performances. Uh, for for whatever reason, whether it's you know uh, through casting or through his work with his actors, great performances in all those films we've just mentioned. Uh, some of them are like beloved performances. I mean, Kathy Bates yeah. has her breakout role in Misery. I think uh, you know uh, Tom Cruise gets to flex some of his early serious acting muscles in A Few Good mm-hmm. Men. Uh, from Harry Met Sally, you know, widely regarded as one of the great uh, romantic comedies of our time and. The, Romantic comedies are films that live and die on the strength of their performances. And Stand By Me, a film literally packed to the gills with amazing performances from child actors, which is not an easy thing. 
Well, I think maybe it, you might make an argument that Rob Reiner's oeuvre makes the argument against auteurism insofar as it is absolutely a collaborative effort, that he is yeah. an excellent collaborator. And and that you do see that there there has to be certain collaborative skill in your Kubricks or your Hitchcocks or your whomever you're going to name as, you know, these sort of very stylistic, um, you know, uh, what am I looking for? Um, idiosyncratic types mm. of filmmakers. Um, he doesn't have those idiosyncrasies. Authoritarian filmmakers. Well, there's also that. And, he, and But I think he is a, he's a good team player. I think yeah. I, if I wanted to make a movie, I would love to have Rob Reiner help me. I, I think he would be great because I think he'd be helpful. And I don't think he's the kind of guy that w- is all about the flash of his own signature or yeah. what have you. So, uh, you know, and that, that is the thing that we keep saying in the interrogation of the auteur theory is that they are um, – films themselves do not have single authors. And that you could actually make arguments for authorship in every one of Rob Reiner's films, I think, for someone other than Reiner. You could make an au- au- argument for, say, Sorkin. Yeah. You could make an argument for Billy Crystal. You could – you know, and we could go on and we could go on and we could go on. Kathy Bates – in uh, Misery as uh, the auteur of that particular film because – and perhaps the screenwriter as well. And then, of course, the source material from Stephen King. But um, what what we see there is that he is able to find the good people and, put, and give them the opportunity to do the best thing they possibly can. And uh, that's a skill. And, it's not, it's not, and unfortunately, in our history of great men – um, and the way in which we tell history as a story of great men is almost always men that we're talking about. Um, his his kind of uh, filmography doesn't fit well into those narratives, and that's why a filmmaker like Rob Reiner doesn't get celebrated. You know, and that's too bad. Yeah, no, I think I think that's an absolutely fair point because he does not present himself as a uh, a master of the screen and the craft. And I alone shepherd this vision. And I I talked to Carl Sagan. I'm making fun of Kubrick a little bit, even though we just talked about how great The Shining is. Uh, but yeah, he, he doesn't have that pomp and yeah. circumstance about him. He's like, I'm a guy, I'm doing a job, I'm going to help other people make a piece of art. And yeah. I, I've got a lot of respect for people that work that way. Yeah, I, I enjoy his movies. I, I, I think he is a fun filmmaker, and I, I enjoy most of the stuff I've seen. Even I, uh, This is what, the third Reiner film we've done on this show? Uh, yeah, I think so, roughly. Uh, you know, we did uh, Few Good Men, Good Men uh, Princess Bride, yeah. this one. Yeah. Um, He's great. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, I recently watched uh, Rumor Has It uh, from... Uh, 2005, I think, with Jen, uh, Jennifer Aniston. And it's not a good movie, but it's fun. You know, I mean, it's got a little charm uh, that I think is uh, kind of through a lot of uh, Reiner's film, that kind of charm and uh, I guess like a, a kind of a sweetness. I don't, you know, I don't know. But, um, and, and so even in those kind of latter-day lesser works, I think there's still some charm there for that, uh, that he brings to it. I think it's just kind of fun and carefree and easygoing type of filmmaking uh, that I appreciate quite a bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so there is the sort of big, uh, broad thing that we want to address there. Let's move on now into the bones of the movie itself. So we have already uttered the term toxic masculinity, and we have said that this film does represent it, though it does not necessarily interrogate it entirely. I guess two things. Would someone like to go ahead and define toxic masculinity? It's a term we throw around a lot. Let's define the term. And then after we do that, let's um, talk about what this film is doing with what it means to be a man in the 50s and perhaps what it's also asking about what it means to be a man in the 1980s and perhaps even today. It certainly is is a a word that we've been throwing around a lot, and I I think part of that is genre film 
cult film, that the kind of movies we talk about on this show are films that are awash with this kind of stuff. Sometimes intentionally, in the case of The Loveless, uh, which we talked about last last episode, uh, also intentionally in the case of Stand By Me, sometimes unintentionally um, in, in other things, or of questionable intentionality, like with the Spider-Man trilogy. They're, you know, it's kind of un- uncertain when that film's doing those things on purpose. Uh, we'll just go ahead and uh, rip from Wikipedia real quickly, just to be as academic as possible about this, so I'm not freestyling <laughs> the definition. We're going to be as academic as possible with the Wikipedia. Well, look, we're, you know, look, it's a podcast, guys. Don't get, don't, don't freak the fuck out. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's going to be too hard to, to freestyle a, a, an and a definition that feels accurate and comprehensive. So uh, from Wikipedia, the concept of toxic masculinity is used in psychology and gender studies to refer to certain norms of masculine behavior in North America and Europe that are associated with harm to society and to men themselves. Traditional stereotypes of men as socially dominant, along with related traits such as misogyny and homophobia, can be considered toxic due to their promotion of violence, including sexual assault and domestic violence. Scholars argue that the socialization of boys often normalizes violence, such as in the saying, boys will be boys, in regard to bullying and ag- with regard to bullying and aggression. So that's the first paragraph of the Wikipedia page for toxic masculinity, and I, yeah, I feel like that's... That's a pretty uh, quick uh, way to understand the concept. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, um, John Wayne masculinity. Yeah, we yeah. could summarize. Men don't cry. I, I think that's a pretty quick way to get at it, and, yeah. and the ways in which uh, the, these lessons that sometimes are coming from a good place, I think, uh, can be really painful. And I, I think, with regard to a lot of the things we've talked about lately, we've talked about toxic masculinity specifically as it pertains to white men. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're all different. And, Look, that's what we're most equipped to talk about as we were raised as white men, uh, which isn't to say that toxic masculinity doesn't affect men in communities of color. Uh, but, you know, we've talked about that in films uh, like He Got Game, but that's the story for filmmakers of color from communities of color to talk about. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, I shouldn't even say from communities of color. I mean, there's plenty of filmmakers and storytellers of color who grew up in predominantly white communities sure. that have their, their own tale to tell. Um, and when we talk about those tales, we will probably still be talking about our own experiences as white dudes who grew up with toxic masculinity. So uh, we, I think we're going to do our best as we talk about this with Stand By Me to not make these wide-sweeping statements that Stand By Me is about all young boys, because obviously it's definitely not. But I, I think it can come from a good place, such as boys don't cry, often being told by fathers who cried a lot and got beat up for it. Yeah. Um, it yeah. that, that's the thing that happens. And yeah. uh, look, sometimes your dad screws up when he's trying to tell you how to not let the world uh, roll over you. Um, so I think that's a common misconception is that the lessons that we learn that are toxically masculine are always coming from a negative place and as it pertains to selling uh, young men boys of war and indoctrinating them into a culture of violence. Yeah, for sure. There's no goodness there uh, most of the time. But as it pertains to, you know, your dad not really teaching you well how to deal with your feelings, sometimes that does come from a place of good intent, and that's where it gets really messy, I think. Um, and I, I think this film does a really great job of, of tackling that. Well, there's the idea of a stereotypical expectation as well, you know, to do boy things. And so Gordon Utton. His last name's Gordon. His first name's Gordy. His first name's Gordy. It's Gordy. It's Gordy. It's Gordy, yeah. Gordy likes to write, and his brother liked to play football. And his brother is the sort of, you know, specter that's haunting uh, his his rise to masculinity himself or to adulthood or manhood is that he's not um, as manly as uh, Big Brother 
uh, John Cusack. And uh, that's, I think, part of the tension as well. And, I mean, you, you see this, this sort of casual um, homophobia that goes on. I mean, Kiefer Sutherland uh, uses a, a, a gay slur at one point, you know, um, to just try to get the guy's attention just to get him to just, just, just say something mean, you know. And uh, because it, to be called gay is to be mean in the you know 1960s yeah. and in the 1980s and in the 1980s as well and when we were growing up I don't know about now hopefully it's gotten better yeah I, I think it is better now yeah but uh, I mean that's still a thing that happens among people our age for sure in the more toxic corners of the internet mm-hmm. um, I, I think where it gets really interesting in Stand by Me is how it relates to River Phoenix's character um, oh my gosh I can't. Chris. Chris. Chris, thank you. As it relates to Chris and Chris Gordy. Chambers. Yeah, because Gordy is embarrassed about being smart. He's yeah. embarrassed about his gifts that are not traditionally masculine. And he would rather be in the, I forget what they call it, but basically the, 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 the less advanced classes that his friends feel like they're destined to end up in. In yeah. shop, making ashtrays and bird, birdhouses. And he right. would rather be there because at least he'll be with his friends. And at least no one will look at him like he's different. Yeah. Um, he would rather be the same, even if it means denying his gifts. And where Chris Chambers comes in as this angel of a best friend is to say, no, man, you are special. This thing you got, it's a, it's a real precursor to uh, goodwill hunting uh, and, and that exploration of masculinity, honestly, and that exploration of uh, a young adult male friendship. Uh, here in adolescent male friendship, you have Chris Chambers as the guy who says, I love you for who you are. I accept you for who you are. Because I am your friend and I wouldn't have you any other way. And it's, it is a beautiful expression of love that comes from a place that is kind of free from toxic masculinity. It is an expression of masculinity that says it is okay to cry and I will hug you when you cry. And I will tell you that everything is okay. And I wish I was your dad so I could let you know how important you are and how special you are. Yeah. It's beautiful. Uh, and I, I think uh, the film, both, uh, both in terms of the direction of those scenes and the writing of those scenes just really sells the power of people in your life uh, in, in both families and found families to influence you. Um, and if you're really lucky, you'll, you'll find people who will influence you in a positive way. Yeah. It's also taking on the idea, you know, within the sort of orbit of the sundry issues that go on with uh, toxic masculinity, the idea of bullying. And uh, just that, you know, and, and, and there is a... a there's a certain justice, a certain Old Testament kind of justice in the Stephen King universe uh, regarding that. And uh, I just love the little section with the gleeful celebration of um, what is um, – I'm not going to say his nickname. But what is the pie-eating boys um, – Hogan. His last name's Hogan. Hogan. Yeah, we won't Some, be mean to him like the whole town was. <laughs> no, we will not. But his revenge is – a beautiful thing. Uh, Gordy's clearly a stand-in for young Stephen King, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, always writers, yeah. 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 But yeah, I mean, as it stands, you know, uh, Hogan's this, you know, bullied kid, bullied by his uh, whole town for being overweight, and he gets the entire town to vomit on themselves. Yeah. It's an amazing story. It's awesome. That just exists as this little set piece in the film. Yeah, it's fun. I, and I, I think you're right, Dustin. I think there is a certain amount of... Uh, non-masculine and yet still Old Testament justice in some yeah. Stephen King tellings, and especially in that story that Gordy tells his friends. And I, I, I think... Uh, now, now, the film does try to have its cake and eat it too, right? Because at the end... There's an act of violence. There's an act of violence, right? When they're confronted by the bullies, uh, Gordy pulls a gun and says, you're not taking this body, yeah. and threatens to shoot Kiefer Sutherland if he does not leave. 
And, uh, and now that's that's kind of a weird choice. What do you think about that? As a, I mean, we just talked about this great scene where Chris says, I love you how you are, and Gordy has to become more like Chris uh, and, uh, to a lesser extent, um, Corey Feldman's character, right? He has to embrace violent tendencies. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that? I, well, I, I, I think paging Dr. Freud. Um, that, because it does seem like the entire film has this crazy narrative about this other lack this um this stain of death the stain of trauma with with regard to the loss of a brother with regard to uh the institutionalization of Corey feldman's dad or uh just you know some of the you know various mistreatments that uh chris chambers suffers that there's always this suffering and this this trauma that these kids are trying to to endure um, at the hands of their fathers or father figures or father-like persons, and um, that they they want to they want to say no to it. They want it. They don't. They want to not deal with it. And that's where I think the vomit story comes in because the vomit story is all about creating that which is not oneself. Right? It's all mirror stage stuff, and how you identify yourself is by what you're not. Right. Uh, language itself is this game of not so much defining a thing as, as opposed to limiting possible definitions of a thing. And now we get like in a Louis Saussure or something like that in a semiotics. But um, the whole movie is doing this. And but as one does this uh, separation from the father, there is this real fear of castration. I think it's what the leech scene's about. Is right. Uh, I, I, that is the that is the real fear that's going on with it. And what happens is again he passes out and like is reborn and reawakened. But what he does is he goes ahead and takes upon himself the mantle of his way of doing toxic masculinity, the way of doing the same fatherhood that his dad did. He's going to do it different. He's going to do it better he hopes but at the same time there's a way in which he's recapitulating the same sorts of cycles of violence that have been done to him and his other friends and so the film i think in that sense with that particular act of violence there at the end it 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 shows that cyclical nature of masculinity even though we can see what our fathers have done and say not me i'm not going to do that and we can renounce those things um, but it's still sort of a fetishistic denial. We say, no, we're not that, and yet we find new and different ways of doing the same kinds of things. I, I, I think where it does succeed there, though, is it, it becomes a moment of, uh, let's call it an act of violence, because you know, I think brandishing a weapon at somebody uh, is definitely an act of violence, I say so, regardless yeah. of what you do after that. Um, but it's not done for glory. It's done to preserve the dignity of a dead kid. Uh, of a dead guy that they kind of knew. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that's that's where Gordy succeeds in blazing his own trail, right? Um, and, and I think Stephen King being kind of a, I, I think, very clear-eyed in ways that uh, Spielberg isn't always, but being very clear-eyed about childhood uh, and, and what it means to grow up in this crazy, chaotic world, I think he understands that um, pure pacifism will get you killed sometimes. And if you're not willing to lay down your life for your ideals, sometimes you might have to intimate that you might be willing to do violence. And that's what Gordy does. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't do it for his own selfish gain, right? No. Know, exactly. He no. does it to preserve the dignity of, uh, I can't remember the name of the dead kid, but they, he says, no, we're not, nobody's taking him back. He sees the body. And I, I think that's the, the great moment of the movie. I mean, it's this very macabre story. They're going to go, you guys want to go see a dead body, as Vern so eloquently puts it. Yeah. And they see the dead body and are 
forever changed by looking at their mortality. And uh, they do the right thing. And I, I think it, it's a kind of a beautiful way that the film does succeed in having its cake and eating it, too. Yeah, I wonder about that tag scene at the end with Richard Dreyfus. You know, he's not a father who seems to be violent anyway, but he also seems to be a father who's not entirely present. He's a little distant. And, 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 and so uh, that's, that's where the recapitulation happens. Okay, good point. You know, uh, but I, I do agree that, I mean, you know, there is a, there's an entire conversation about just the use and usefulness of violence. Uh, in a violent world, and sometimes it to to not respond violently to a violent situation is itself an act of violence. That that by inaction you are you are as guilty of violence. Uh, and I and I you know, and I see that, and I think there is some of that rolling around inside the uh, uh, the head of this film, I guess. But at the same time, it does seem to be there. There's an embrace there that um, is not going to be all that helpful and that he's going to be distant and he's not going to value his friendships and do again, uh, sort of, you know, quote unquote, more feminine kind of uh, things like, you know, keeping up with your friends, right? Yeah. Uh, he's, you know, we're going to get busy and do things and do life and allow our friends to get distant and suddenly one's dead and we, we're going to miss them and we don't know what to do with that. And our kids are in our home and yet we're not present with them. And that seems to be the tragedy of that story, is that there's a way in which they've grown up and the town has gotten smaller, but they themselves have reduced their own potentialities to a set that is still in line, is still genealogically connected to the masculinity that was handed to them by their fathers. I think that, uh, that brings me uh, really well, Dustin, to something I want to talk about, uh, just talking about how these kids are changed at the end. Uh, when we were kicking around what game we were going to do this week. I said, uh, we could uh, say which of the boys we are. And I, Arthur, you very astutely said, we're all, all the boys. Yeah. Uh, uh, absolutely. And that's kind of the yeah. beauty of the phone. Do you want to tease that out a little bit? Well, I, I think they're all, you know, just kind of, you could look at them as each as the archetype, right? Of, you know, I think Gordy's the most grounded. He's the, um, you know, the writer. He's the emotional core of the film. And I think, you know, he is the ego, essentially, kind of, of, of the film. For, he's, he's the George of the Beatles, right? Yeah. yeah he's a sensitive one. Yeah, and I think Vern is kind of that awkward, anxious, bumbling teenager that doesn't really know what, which I think all teenagers are, you know. Mm -hmm. They lack the confidence, or uh, especially at that, you know, 12 to 13, they're not sure what their body's doing, they're not sure what they're doing, and they don't know how to necessarily cope within social structures, and I think that's where Vern kind of fits in, and, you know, I, I think, uh, I can't, Teddy, it's Teddy, yeah, right? Teddy, yeah, Teddy, yeah. Uh, I think Teddy is just kind of those... Uh, social fears of and, uh, some, I think, with Gordy as well, but just of living in your parents' shadow and, and living up to those reputations and you know the sins of the father and things of that nature uh, lie there. And, and just uh, Chris is just kind of the uh, I think he's the uh, yin uh, uh, or the yang to uh, Gordy's yin, right? I think that's mm -hmm. the kind of the compliment there, and, and they they are able to tease that out. And I think those boys make a whole of a a. 12-year-old white boy, uh, middle class, low, uh, you know, lower class or whatever, kind um, of growing up at that time period. And I think, uh, I think each of them represents a little bit about a, a, a person watching this film. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to put it because as soon as you start to tease out the ways in which they're different, you do start to circle back in the ways in which they're similar because as soon as you mentioned Gordy's the sensitive one, well, Chris is also the sensitive one. Mm -hmm. and as soon as you say Teddy's the angry, violent one, well, Chris kind of is too. And well, Gordy's the anxious one. Well, Vern's definitely is, too. And you're right. They all kind of feed into each other and become one representation of young boyhood in ways that I think are 
really, really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember being 12. I'm definitely Vern, though. <laughs> <laughs> Look, on my worst days, I'm definitely Teddy. <laughs> Mr. Gordy over here? Or well, I'm, a little bit of Gordy, a little bit of Chris? I'm a little Gordy, a little Chris, yeah. No. I, I think, yeah. I, you I, look like Gordy. I, there, there is, there is some. There's a genealogical there. connection, I believe. Yeah, yeah. I am actually Will Wheaton's bastard son. <laughs> you and Will Wheaton. I know you and Will Wheaton are the same, same. Age, pretty much. <laughs> oh yeah, we are. Aren't we? Yeah, I, I think uh, you and Will Wheaton are He's both. Your twin. Vamp- you and Will Wheaton are both vampires. You've both looked the same for the last ten years. <laughs> he has a beard. I just hate him. <laughs> <laughs> he had to grow the beard, so nobody thought about uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation when they looked at oh, him. Oh man, I tell you what, I, I, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> Wesley. Anyway, yep. not not a character I loved. Um, mm. But anyhow, uh, I don't think Will Wheaton loves him either. I, no, I think I Will Wheaton's very annoyed at uh, that's a other Star Trek fans being mad at him. Oh, that's it's a- really adorable to hear him talk about how excited he was to be on the set of a Star Trek show and all the other actors just not being as into it as he is. It's yeah. really, it's really cool. I, I, I like Will Wheaton. I think people, I think Will Wheaton is a great person. He has yeah. turned into like a really kind of interesting figure in I culture. Think so. No, I, I blame Wesley Crusher on the writing. I don't blame it at all on Will, <laughs> Will, Will, Will Wheaton. I can't say that very fast. But yeah, as soon as we all any of us tries to pin down who we are, we start to see other aspects of ourselves yeah. in these other characters, and I think. I mean, that's just good writing, especially if you're yeah. writing about childhood. Uh, the other thing I want to just mention is the fact that they are seeking out a dead body. And uh, I, I think uh, mortality is an important issue with all this as well, um, that um, they understand that there are real stakes in life, that this movie is fundamentally about people dying, yeah. um, that there is the death of the older brother, Denny, played by John Cusack. There is the death of the boy. And then there's the death of uh, Chris at the end, right, uh, where he as a man has just uh, stepped in the middle of a fight and got stabbed in the neck. And, uh, yeah. man, it's just too bad, right? Um, that, that's, yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's become this kind of stand-up what, lawyer or something. He's like become that. an yeah. attorney, yeah. Yeah, and then he's, he's, what he's always done is to stand up for what's right and, and to uh, intervene where necessary. And it, yeah, it's, it's a great moment in the movie when, when he's narrating that at the end. It's beautiful. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it makes the scene, the fact that River Phoenix is is no longer with us makes that scene even sadder, yeah. obviously. Yeah. But even within the context of the story, without that, you know, metatextual, real-world, um, you know, context, it is just a beautiful moment that says sometimes being the best version of yourself means not being here for very long. Yeah. But I, I think regarding death, there are two aspects of the film kind of kind – of delves into a little bit the first of is the sort of sense of loss of innocence Mm -hmm. that there is there is a certain um uh, innocence that one has and then one realizes everyone is going to die you know every single person is going to die you know and that means you know uh, one of us is going to bury the other two of us in this room you know (sighs) suicide pack because because one of us is going to go last we got to do a deadpool right Yes. Those are illegal, I think, actually. <laughs> I think maybe they are. We'll have to talk about that off air. There's another name for it that's actually a more fun name. Of the, shit, I can't think of it. There's a whole episode of Archer about it. It's, it's not funny. important. Here's what, here's what would happen, though. Whoever goes first, the other two would be looking over their shoulder for the rest of their life because they couldn't trust the other one. <laughs> that's accurate. Yeah. That's uh, but no, you're, yeah. I, I, I think in 12 is a great age to talk about that, right? It's an age yeah. where people start losing grandparents. People start losing their first pet. It is the age where I think most... Though that accident happens in your community. Yeah. 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 I, I think as far as even just thinking about the people in my life, the people I've talked to about mortality, that's about the age everybody I know had their first experience with it. And 
there is something about that transition from adolescence to teenagedom that, you know, is marked by loss of innocence just by realizing that you're, you are going to become an adult too. Um, and if you also have an early experience with mortality at that point, your development into an adult really does get tied into your sense of, uh, finiteness. Mm, I think there's a specifically sort of, uh, modern era, um, sort of component to this as well. Um, because the way in which we have sort of bracketed off death, especially the death of human beings, but also the death of livestock and that kind of stuff uh, from our lives, uh, that that there there is a sense as you read uh, literatures from even just as, as recent as the 19th century where uh, death is something that is commonplace and sort of understood and uh, that this phenomenon of this – idea that bullets make you sleepy from television, this idea that, uh, that that it's not a thing that affects us, that it is a thing that's so far away and so distant, is a relatively new phenomenon. And I'm not convinced it's a great thing, you know. Uh, and, and, I mean, I, I've sort of talked about this before, but I, I don't know. We, we, we talk about sometimes protecting a child from death. And what it does is it creates a curiosity, you know, and it's, would you like to go see a dead body? Kind of thing, but I, I think also it just creates this sort of false sense of immortality. It creates this sort of um, inability to sort of process when uh, death comes riding in because it is sort of um, surprising and comes at different times. Um, you know, my my sons, uh, and this is I think I've talked about this on the show before. My my sons um, have had no illusions about mortality because they've grown up in a pastor's home. And uh, they were going to funerals when they were four or three, yep. you know. Childcare was hard to find when you live very, yep. very far away from family. And so, I mean, as soon as they could sit still in a church service, they could sit still in a funeral. And uh, it's the same kind of thing. And so, you know, I think my oldest was like, ask, so everybody dies, right, Dad? Yep. And we had that kind of conversation. You're going to die too? Yep. I'll be sad about that. Well, thanks, boy. You know. <laughs> uh, uh, but and, and it was after a funeral where uh, somebody that was a part of our church that he knew um, had died. And he's like, so Steve's dead, right? And you're going to die. Yeah. And I'm going to die. And am I going to die? F- are you going to die first? And I'm like, probably. And, I mean. Uh, probably. Yeah. The best answer you can give. Yeah, probably. Which is, yeah. The only answer that's not a well, lie. Odds are I'll, I'll die first. But you can't guarantee that. I don't know that. You yeah. certainly hope no. that. And that's, yeah. man, that's where it gets really fucked. Yeah. And yeah, re- re- people batting out of order on this one is not okay. When you, that, I think that's the real moment where the adolescence starts to melt into adulthood, right? Is the moment where you realize the best thing that you can do, the only job you have as a child is to make sure you outlive your parent. That's when stuff gets really screwy, I think. And I think yeah. that's what Gordy has to deal with throughout this film is he saw his brother do the thing that kids aren't supposed to do. Kids aren't supposed to die. Mm -hmm. Parents die. Grandparents die. Kids don't die. And when a kid dies, it really throws a wrench in things and makes you reevaluate. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's when things get weird. And, uh, I mean, weird is the only word I can think of. That's not a heartbreaking word. So Mm -hmm. that's what I'm going with. But yeah, I think there's something really, Ephemeral? I, I can't even think. There's something almost mystical about it. I mean, just because it is so unspeakable, right? Mm-hmm. The death of a child. And uh, it's something Stephen King writes a lot about. And I, I think having no illusions about mortality means having no illusions about anyone's safety at the same time. Yeah. And that's where the loss of innocence comes in. 
Yeah, absolutely. The other, the other aspect, I think, more positively, to, to end on a note that's a little bit more Yeah, cheerful, let's get out of this ditch. Is, is that what death does do for us as we are confronted by its specter is that we realize that the days we have are limited and that we are then um, inspired to live them in a way to make them count. Right, and I and I think the sort of Chris story works that way, uh, even though he dies too young, even you know dying what, what appears to be his late thirties. Um, Roger Dreyfus seems to be late thirties. Well, I mean, it's eighty something, so yeah, like thirty something checks out. Yeah, they, yeah. yeah, early late thirties, early forties. Yeah, which is I mean, again, too young. I mean, you know, in, in the yeah. sort of traditional senses, I would not like to check out right now myself. Correct. But um, as I am in my late thirties and would be the age, and actually, yeah, you I, got too many responsibilities. Uh, yeah, but I mean, it certainly could. But that being said, what you what the person is you know chris made his life count he said you know what i will st- stick it out i'll take the hard college classes i'll make something of myself i'll become an attorney which is you know a great sort of thing uh, there's a situation that i find myself in in a mcdonald's or wherever whatever fast food restaurant he's in and people are having to find it's like i'm gonna make peace in this situation i mean he he lived well and i think there is a sense in which this film's confrontation with death does, on the other side of it, not only sort of give us this sort of loss of innocence, but it also helps us reclaim uh, this idea of a limited amount of time and therefore um, an inspiration to make things count, right? Yeah. And that's powerful, you know. I think so. And useful. I think uh, it does a really good job of cementing Chris's character arc, right? Because his whole arc and the arc for Teddy and Vern also is people telling them who they are and who they can be. And Chris says, I refuse that narrative. I'm not going to let anybody tell me who I'm going to be. I'm going to be the best version of myself. And I, I think it allows Gordy, uh, adult Gordy, to remember. And that's when Gordy, uh, it does end with him playing with his kid and his kid's friend, right? Mm-hmm. It says, it, it does manage to be, uh, without being schmaltzy, as we've talked about, it avoids that trap. It still gets to be a little bit of a life is worth a living film. It doesn't turn into the other Rob Reiner film, The Bucket List, which no. is good. Yeah, right. but but it still manages to say, remember that your days are numbered. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't have to be a sad thing. It can be a thing that you, you know, a memento mori is not always a, a bad thing. It's a good thing sometimes to remember that your time is finite, so you should probably make the most of it and remember to nurture the relationships that are important to you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anything else burning in your minds to discuss regarding the film Stand By Me? Oh, there's one thing I want to bring up, and I think it's important to kind of set it up now because we're going to be in this topic for quite a while. Uh, I I mentioned it early on. We've said it a few times, but Stand By Me is kind of the, I I mean, for me, and I think for a lot of people, it's the the definition of a coming-of-age movie. I mean, certainly you've got stuff before that, you know, Rebel Without a Cause or 400 Blows, We're Going to France, or, you know, Lindsay Anderson's If, I think, can kind of fall in that category. Uh, But when it comes right down to it, it's it's 1980s and it's Stand By Me. So I I really want to flesh out this idea of what makes a good coming-of-age film. You know, what elements go into that? Is is it just... uh, you know, getting getting beneath the surface and looking at the humanity of and the trials of you know childhood and and wrestling with those fears that are real to to adolescence or you know uh, what makes a good uh, coming of age film? What 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 are the outliers? What you know what is it about Stand by Me that sticks out that that makes it so iconic? I suppose. Hansel and Gretel is my answer, and this is what I mean. Okay. And is that you have to go into the woods somewhere. You have to go on a journey with someone else, with a group of people. There's always got to be 
the sort of core group of friends, whether they're, they're three little pigs or whatever it is, you know, or four buddies from Castle Rock, Oregon, or Castle Rock, Maine, wherever it happens to be. And then you have to go through the woods and you have to lock up a witch, whatever that the witch is. If it's the specter of death or if it's a trauma or if it's a bully, whatever kind of monster, you've got to stick that thing in the oven and then you've got to follow the breadcrumbs home. I think whatever that shape is, that's the coming of age story. Uh, I, I think for me it comes back to this this uh, Werner Herzog idea that we've talked about a couple of times on the show, the ecstatic truth. Mm. Um, I've never gone looking for a dead body, but I've definitely not been where I said I was going to be when I was 12 and gone on yep. a bike, gone yep. much further on a bike than I was allowed to go. Um, and sometimes that's, that's the beauty of film, as, as Herzog puts it. You know, it's only through stylization and fabrication and the lies of cinema that you can capture something concrete about mm-hmm. what it means to be a little kid. And um, I, I think that's what a great coming-of-age film does is it's, it, it's so specific that allows it to be universal. Because if you're too broad, you don't say anything. But if you're specific enough that you can say, this specificity speaks to this moment in everybody's childhood. Uh, we had it with Girlhood, which is about, you know, uh, being a, a young uh, woman of color in France. That is pretty far from our experiences, mm-hmm. and all of us really were moved and were spoke to by that film. And I think if, if a film that's about coming of age can, can grab that, can say specificity is what allows for universality and it doesn't really matter how true that specificity is, I, I think that's something that I'll definitely be looking for throughout this marathon for sure. Well, I, 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 I agree with you. And I think it's, I really like how you put that, Dustin, mm-hmm. your little uh, analogy there. And I think that's part of it, that, that kind of, that journey to discovery, I think is a key to that. And then the, uh, uh, for me, I think it's just hitting on those kind of universal truths that are, uh, are important, at least important at the age of 13 or 16 or 18 or whatever it may be, or 25, if we're looking at Shaun of the Dead or whatever. But um, I, I think those are the elements, and, and you know, the the rest of it is just kind of the uh, icing on the cake, whether it's the performances or the, you know, the director or whatever. But I, I think the heart of the story, I think coming of age is... is driven strong by the narrative rather than any other element uh, within the, the genre. And so I'm, I'm, I'm interested to see, uh, you know, we're, we're talking about going through the decades. Uh, and I think it'll be fun. And I think it'll be fun to go back at the end of this to rank these movies to see uh, what this all looks like. Movies? Does that mean we're going to do another show? Dustin, we're going to do several more shows. But That's right. Before we can talk about that, we have I'm to, committing uh, to one more. Well, we'll I've see. got a contract uh, <laughs> that uh, secures you through the end of the season. Oh, I guess we got to we got to rank these things or uh, shelf for trash, right? Yeah. We, oh, we, yeah. We must render a verdict before uh, we can talk about we, next week. We must. <laughs> we, we've had a great conversation. It's a good stand one by me. Uh, so, okay, very quickly, shelf for trash. Elsewhere instead, Arthur Gordon, go. Uh, I definitely going to shelf it. Uh, else, I think uh, I'm going to say we've we've mentioned it a lot, and I think the parallels are too perfect, and it's. 2017's it. Uh, I mean, it is just the further exploration of this. I mean, you've got the main character who's grieving and all that stuff, and I mean, it's all there. And the bullies. I mean, it's it's the same story, but with a clown. Trash mouth, and yeah, yeah. Uh, there's a lot of repetition. Yeah, smash here. mouth. Um, uh, yeah, uh, I say you watch the Goonies. Hey now, I think if you want some more of that 80s kind of coming of age goofiness with a, a fun little ensemble cast, uh, the Goonies is a good place, and we got the Spielberg. Uh, connection there, I think. Uh, and then finally, uh, just where this movie ends and that reflection on relationships with friends that you know you have at the age of 12, I think Ito Mama Tambien mm-hmm. uh, is, is the kind of perfect pair there to uh, sit down at that diner and say, I'll see you again. 
and just let it go from there. Uh, I think that's kind of a great spiritual sequel to this movie. So those are my recommendations to go with. Nice. Stand by me. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, uh, Shelf of Trash Shelves for instead. Uh, it's extremely shelfable. Uh, everybody should watch this with their parents. Um, I, I fundamentally think that. I kind of wish I'd watch it with my dad. Uh, very happy to watch it with my fiance, but I kind of wish I'd watch it with my dad a little bit. Uh, it's an extremely shelfable film. To pair with it, uh, I'm going to say Jordan Voight Roberts' debut, Kings of Summer, uh, another great film about boys going out into the woods and getting into trouble. Uh, a much more kind of magical realism type film in some ways, but uh, I think a, a really exciting film, a really fun film, and one that I don't think we're going to get to talk about in this marathon, uh, but um, we might we might not, but uh, a really great coming-of-age film. Um, that's a little bit more contemporary. Uh, I would also say Jeff Nichols' film Mud, uh, which is definitely a film about coming of age and locking up a witch. Uh, it's a it's a you know it's a crime thriller coming of age film, and those are always kind of interesting. Uh, but I, th- I think uh, I think Taylor Sheridan is the kid in that. Um, I want to say it's Taylor Sheridan. And Kings be... of no in uh, Mud. Um, oh yeah. Ty Sheridan? Ty Sheridan, thank you. Uh, Matthew McConaughey are both really, really good, good together movie. in that film. Yeah, I, I think it's it's a very different kind of coming-of-age film. It's about uh, coming-of-age when one of your best friends is a grown-up, and I think that's um, an interesting uh, topic of conversation in film. Uh, lastly, um, let's let's take a look at another Rob Reiner film. Let's look at A Few Good Men, uh, because I, I think, uh, you know, again, we have talked about it on the show, and it was a surprisingly good episode. It was an episode without Dustin, one of the very few that there are. I know well, we were nervous. So we were nervous about it, um, <laughs> but I think there's a lot there, and I think it's another film about toxic masculinity. Um, you know, you try. We were talking about finding through lines in Rob Reiner's career, and I think you can draw one from uh, Stand by Me to A Few Good Men, because uh, other than a you know a vaguely evil Keith or Sutherland. Um, there is also similar conversations about uh, duty and responsibility and how do you be the best version of yourself. You need me on that wall. You want me on that wall. Uh, so those are going to be my pairings for... Stand by me. I knew the name of the movie. I was doing a dramatic pause. I know. I, <laughs> I was you can't to handle the pause. I hey can't. now, Dustin, uh, tell me uh, how you feel. Mail. Shelf, um, also, you should watch. <laughs> I'm just going to move right into it. Uh, Perfect World, starring Kevin Costner. You should also watch. What's that? Uh, it's a movie about a, uh, it, he's a bank robber or some sort of thief, some sort of criminal. Maybe he's an escaped convict. I can't remember exactly his criminal background, but he is running away from the police. He, in the 1950s, he holds up with a single woman and her son and takes the son with him as a hostage, and they have huh. a road trip together in conversation. I believe Clint Eastwood may have directed that film um but i can't remember off the top of my head for sure um but a perfect world um starring kevin costner also watch the sandlot because yes and also watch the outsiders because the 50s and uh you'll have a good time um thinking about being a boy and growing up a boy uh and i think squints is trash mouth is uh teddy and that's um, accurate that's all i want to say about that so there you go dear listener those are recommends your syllabus just got longer and one more movie one more movie well, uh, I think we all got signed up. Uh, our, 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 our parents are all taking us off to some summer camp uh, resort thing. I don't know. Uh, I hear Camp Crystal Lake because that's a wrong growing no, up. No, it's not that one. Uh, <laughs> okay. We're going to a different one. It's a much more upscale uh, camp, let me tell you what. Uh, I think they do dancing lessons. I don't know. But I know next week we find out that nobody puts Dalton in a corner uh, because we're watching Dirty Dancing. We will move a little bit further into the 1960s, out of the shadow of the 1950s, and into the shadow of sexual liberation under the arms of Patrick Swayze. 
I'm very excited. Yet another 80s film uh, that is about another time period. And so. Dalton and Dustin will both attempt to do the lift with me. Got this. I'm super excited. I'm, t- I'm totally down for that. So there you go, dear listener. We're going to have a great conversation. We did a great talk about Stand By Me. Take a look at that. Take a look at Dirty Dancing. Take a look at any movie and have a conversation with somebody you care about because that's what makes watching the movie so worthwhile. You keep watching. We'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. When the night has come Thank you for tuning in to the Good Trash Genrecast, a product of Good Trash Media. For more Good Trash content, head over to GoodTrashMedia.com. Our intro is an original composition by friend of the show Aaron Rodgers. And our outro is, of course, Stand By Me by Penny King. Be afraid just as long as you stand, stand by me. So darling, Stand by me.